Well, good morning. It's great to be back uh, with you this morning to open up God's Word with you. Uh, some people asked me last week uh, who I was. <laughs> I wasn't introduced to any of you. Uh, my name's Alan Holtberg. I'm uh, a professor at uh, Talbot School of Theology at Biola University. And uh, my wife and I have been members here for uh, probably 20 years, uh, I think. Yeah, maybe 21 years. So it's good to be back this morning. And it's a good thing that you are here this morning because I'm about to tell you the most important thing that you are ever going to hear. It's something you've heard before. But I want you to really think about it this morning. Okay, I, I'm going to make sure that you really take this to heart. So are you ready? The most important thing that you're ever going to hear is you have to look out for number one. Now, probably that's not what you thought I was going to say. I'm pretty sure you didn't expect that to be the most important thing that you're ever going to hear. But uh, it's, I'm telling you, it really is. And it's certainly... uh, the most important thing that uh, we get peddled every day in, uh, in modern advertising, the idea that you need to look out for number one is uh, something that permeates modern American advertising. Uh, we're told you need to take care of yourself. You deserve it. You can have it all. In fact, uh, a commercial came out in 1974, when I was 12 years old, I remember when that commercial came out. I know for some of you, uh, the fact that I was 12 years old in 1974 makes me sound like a young punk. Uh, and to a lot of you, 1974 sounds like ancient history, and, I, and I'm probably an old fogey as far as you're concerned. But I was 12 in 1974, and a commercial came out with sort of an earworm of a jingle, and it perfectly captures this idea of looking out for number one, this ethos of American advertising. So take a look at this. Have it your way, have it your way, have it your way at Burger King. May I help you, sir? Two Whoppers, two Whopper Juniors, and four Coca-Cola. And would I have to wait long if you made... One Whopper with no pickle and no lettuce? No, sir. Hold the pickle, hold the lettuce. Special orders don't upset us. All we ask is that you let us serve it your way. Oh, well, in that case, could I have the other Whopper with extra ketchup? Sure. We can serve your grilled beef Whopper fresh with everything on top or any way you think is proper. Have it your way. Now, that's the way to do things, our way. Have it your way, have it your way, at Burger King, Burger King. <laughs> All right, that's an awesome commercial as far as I'm concerned. Uh, not only does the lady behind the counter uh, remind me of Kirsten Bishop for some reason, uh, but it's got a tune that you're going to be singing all day today. Well, besides the incredibly catchy tune and sort of the 
the cheesy commercial. As I said, it captures this ethos of American advertising perfectly. Have it your way. All that Burger King asks is that they can serve it your way. You're number one. And that taps into the ethos of our society. Who's number one? You are. You deserve to have things your way. Now, this goes for our relationships as well. We shouldn't let others push us around. Uh, we need to uh, look out for ourselves. Um, make sure nobody squeezes you out. You've got to get your piece of the pie. In your interactions with others, you have to look out for number one. Now, even though that sounds self-centered and maybe even a little arrogant, did you know that it's actually true? Did you know that the Bible actually says that in our relationships, we're supposed to look out for number one? The passage that we'll be looking at today is a continuation of the one that we were in last week. It's the second part of the household code that Paul is uh, enunciating in Ephesians 5.22 to 6.9, where Paul talks about how Christians are to conduct themselves in their relationships within the home. Last week, we looked at the relationship of husbands and wives. And this week, we're going to be looking at the relationships of parents and children and of slaves and masters. And that, that last one, we're going to have to unpack a little bit. And we're going to see that Paul's primary concern in these relationships is that we look out for number one. What's going to be important for us to note, however, is how he talks about that, how he says we're supposed to do that. It'll be a little different than what our society might think. So turn to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll give you a second to get there. Darcy told me I should talk and do something uh, silly while you guys are looking it up, but I'll just give you a second to get there. And uh, we'll start reading in verse 1. Ephesians 6, 1 to 3. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you, and that you may live long on the earth. Okay, the first relationship, or maybe the second relationship, since the first one was husbands and wives last week, but the first relationship we'll deal with this week is the relationship of children and parents. Children, Paul says, should obey their parents. And what does he say uh, is the reason they should do that? What do you notice? Actually, there's two reasons, but, but what do you notice? What's the first thing he says? The first thing that Paul says, uh, the first reason that children should obey their parents, he says, is because this is right. It's proper. It's the way things should be. See, parents are older they have more life experience. Hopefully, they're wiser than their children. And so they know what's best for their children. 
uh, they know how children should act in the broader society and within the household. And so uh, uh, children should listen to their parents. Parents are responsible for their children's well-being and for their conduct. So, children, obey your parents, for this is right. It's right to obey your parents. In fact, what does Paul say uh, will be the outcome of children obeying their parents in verse 3? In verse 3, Paul quotes Scripture to the effect that the child who obeys his parents will prosper, will live long, will have long lives. Now, this promise comes from the Old Covenant, from the Mosaic Covenant, from God's covenant with Israel, where God promises Israel that if they will Uh, follow his commands, if they'll live within the stipulations of the covenant, God would bless them. Uh, He would bless their land so that it would be fruitful. He would bless their livestock so that they would be fruitful. If they go to war, God says, they're going to win. And most importantly of all, God would plant them in the land that he was giving them. They would stay there forever. And he said, if Israel is not faithful to the covenant, then he would curse them. He would curse their land, and it wouldn't produce crops. He would curse their livestock, and they wouldn't be fruitful. When they go to war, they'll lose. And again, the most important thing was, if they're not faithful to the covenant, God is going to expel them from the land that he was giving them. So the promise that children should obey their parents is Uh, first and foremost, a stipulation of God's old covenant with Israel. Uh, And the the promise that they'll live long in the land and prosper is, is part of the promise of the old covenant. Now, we're not under the old covenant. And so we can't expect the same sort of material blessing that Israel could expect. Nevertheless, even though we're not under the old covenant, it still remains true that, in general, obedience to parents, uh, uh, paying attention to the lessons that they teach us, will lead to a good life. While it might not be inevitable, right, uh, that we'll be prosperous and have a long life, nevertheless, if we pay attention to our parents, to what they say about responsible living, in general, we will prosper. So maybe you don't get the perfect job that you were looking for. Maybe uh, someone dies young because of an illness or because of an accident. But uh, in general, obeying parents turns out well. We live long and prosper, right? I feel like I should do this when I say that. We live long and prosper. Unfortunately, children don't always believe this to be the case. Many children, maybe even most children, at some point in their uh, lives as they're growing up, challenge their parents' authority in some way. And maybe in some sense, uh, they have to do that as part of becoming an independent adult. I was trying to see if uh, Liz Hall or Todd or 
or Chris Grace was in the congregation today. They're, they're great psychologists. They could tell you whether or not children have to uh, push back against their parents a little bit. That, that I don't know. You can talk to them later uh, if you want to know more about that. But this passage is one of uh, numerous passages in Scripture that tell us not to spurn our parents' knowledge of life. Okay? Not to spurn their lessons about wise conduct. We're not as smart as we think. And that's being directed to all you kids in the audience. Uh, we're not as smart as we think. And our parents actually know what they're talking about. Now, uh, some of you may have heard uh, this before. It reminds me of a quip from Mark Twain. Uh, it's reported that Twain said, when he was 14 years old, his father was so ignorant that he couldn't stand to be around him. And when Twain turned 20, his father had a couple of good things to say and Twain could tolerate him. But when Mark Twain turned 25, he was astounded. He couldn't believe how much his father had learned in the previous 14 years. <laughs> right? Our parents do know what they're talking about. So children, obey your parents because it's the proper thing to do. And it will help you have a good life, even if you can't believe that right now. But Paul doesn't tell children to obey their parents merely for the practical value. It's not just proper to, be, to obey your parents uh, because it's going to pay off for you in the end. Paul gives a second and more profound reason for children to, prof- uh, to obey their parents. It's summarized in the phrase at the end of uh, the command in verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. It's also implied in uh, the command in verse 2. Honor your father and your mother. It's not primarily right for children to obey their parents because of the practical value of doing so. It's right because God commands it. Okay, so you recognize where that quote comes from. Honor your father and your mother. Where does that come from? It comes from the Ten Commandments. Okay, that's one of the Ten Commandments. That's why Paul says in verse 1, children, not just children obey your parents, but children obey your parents in the Lord. Obedience to parents is part of a children's or a child's obedience to God. So remember what we noted last week, that all the commands here in Ephesians 5.22 through 6.9, these are all... Uh, based on the broader command of Ephesians 5.21. Does anybody remember Ephesians 5.21 from last week? Or go back to Ephesians chapter 5 and take a look at verse 21. What does Paul say there? He says, Be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Submit to one another in the fear of Christ. Ideal relationships in the Christian home are ones of mutual 
submission in deference to God and in deference to God's rule in our lives. And the form that children's submission to God takes is obedience to parents. And God promises that he will reward that obedience as submission to him. So how then do parents submit to their children? How do parents submit to their children in the fear of the Lord? Paul says in verse 4, And fathers, parents, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. First thing he says is, Fathers or parents, don't provoke your children to anger. Now, one thing that's true is that we're all born believing that we're God, that the world revolves around us, and that we should always get our way. Uh, The terrible twos are called the terrible twos because for some reason at that age, our two-year-old self-centered sinful self comes out in spades right? Uh, And it's the job of our parents to teach us that the world doesn't revolve around us, and that job uh, starts uh, taking off when we turn two years old. And so what do we do when our parents tell us the world doesn't revolve around us? We throw tantrums, right? We scream, we cry, we kick, we push back with, with everything that we have, Children uh, get angry when their parents try to teach them that lesson. And guess what? That response doesn't end when you magically, when you turn three years old, right? That response continues uh, all through your growing up years. As parents try to teach you the basic lesson that you're not number one. In fact, there are 40-year-olds and there are 60-year-olds Uh, who still throw tantrums because they've never learned that basic lesson from their parents. So in one sense, basic parenting will make children angry. But that isn't what Paul is talking about here when he says that parents shouldn't provoke their children to wrath or to anger. He means that parents shouldn't act in such a way that Uh, they frustrate their children, that they embitter their children. He means that parents should treat their children with the dignity and the respect that uh, children deserve as human beings made in the image of God. So how is it that we negatively provoke our children to anger? Well, I can think of a few ways. One thing that children notice right away is if we are unfair, right? You've probably heard that if you're a parent. That's not fair. Or if we're capricious, if we don't, uh, if we're, we're sort of arbitrary in the way that we deal with them. Children need uh, equity. Children need predictability. And so as parents, we need to make sure that we are fair and consistent in the way that we treat our children. We can also provoke our children to anger if we're too harsh 
or if we're too restrictive uh, or if we're unreasonable. And I suppose this comes under the same rubric of fairness. But we need to balance appropriate discipline with clearly communicated love and respect to our children. And a third way, sadly, that uh, parents treat their children with disrespect is when they verbally or physically demean them or humiliate them or worse, abuse them. And obviously, this is just plain cruelty on the part of the parent. And sometimes uh, this happens when we try to live through our children, right? When our egos are stoked based on whatever our child is able to do. And so we push them uh, to perform. We give them sort of unreasonable expectations uh, about uh, school or sports or the arts, right? And then we jump down their throats uh, when they don't meet those expectations. Children need the love and affirmation of their parents. They don't need demands for perfection or messages that they don't matter or that uh, they're in the way or things like that. So parents who provoke their children to anger in these ways are not submitting uh, to their children in the fear of the Lord, as the scriptures demand. So instead of provoking their children to anger, what does Paul say in verse 4 that parents are really supposed to do? How do they serve their children? Paul says, that parents need to bring their children up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The job of parents, if they are serving their children, is to teach uh, teach their children to become mature, responsible, godly adults. Okay? Let me say that again. If parents are serving their children properly, if they're doing the right job, the job is to to raise their children to become mature, godly, responsible adults. So, uh, what does that look like? Well, to be a responsible adult, children need to learn to show love and consideration to other people. First of all, they need to know that they're not number one that the world doesn't revolve around them. So parents need to teach uh, those virtues by their words, by their own actions, right? By uh, the expectations that they place upon their children, by the experiences that they give their children, maybe uh, taking them to a soup kitchen to to serve others or uh, other ways that uh, uh, they can put those kinds of experiences into their child's life. But children need to learn uh, that the world doesn't revolve around them and that they need to be others-centered, not self-centered. So parents need to teach them that. Uh, Another aspect of being a mature adult is making wise decisions. So parents need to teach their children principles of wisdom, how to make wise decisions how to make good decisions about the use of their time or 
how to make good decisions about their money or about uh, their health or other sorts of things. And parents need to teach those skills by their own actions. They need to teach children uh, by what they, not only by what they tell the children, but how they act responsibly as well, how they make good decisions. And they need to allow children, they need to give children experiences of making good decisions, right? We need to allow them within parameters that we set to make decisions and to learn what's wise and what's not wise, okay? And finally, to be a mature adult, children need to embrace the lordship and the worship of Christ. They need to embrace the gospel and everything that it entails. They need to love God with their whole hearts and not just love their neighbor as themselves. Sometimes, uh, especially non-Christians, obviously, they, they get the idea you need to love na- your neighbor as yourself, and, and that seems to be the be-all and end-all. But really, uh, to be a mature, godly, responsible adult, you need to love God as well. You need to embrace the gospel and everything that the gospel uh, tells you. And so we parents need to teach our children to do that. We need to tell them with our words. Again, we need to show them with our actions. And uh, in all these other ways that I've mentioned, we need to teach them that maturity means submission to God. So you serve your children when you teach them with, with diligence and with respect to become responsible, mature, godly adults. All right. Well, this brings us to the third, uh, if we're counting last week, or the second, if we're counting this week, the third and final household relationship that Paul addresses. And this one is a little disconcerting. Uh, This is the relationship of slaves to masters. So turn to Ephesians 6, and uh, we'll start reading again in verse 5. This is Ephesians 6, 5 to 8. Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. With good will, render service as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good thing each one does, this he will receive back from the Lord whether slave or free. Okay, so Paul begins by telling slaves that they should obey their masters. Now, before I begin diving into this passage, uh, I want to take this moment publicly to, to thank Robert for assigning me not only last week's lesson, right? Wives, submit to your husbands, but this week's lesson as well, slaves, obey your masters. There's nothing I, I, I appreciate more than being able to unpack such simple and you know, uncontroversial uh, passages as this. So why in the world does Paul tell slaves to obey their masters? You'd think he would say, slaves, push back against your masters. You shouldn't be slaves. God doesn't condone slavery, but he doesn't do that here. 
In fact, when he says, slaves, obey your masters, it sounds like Paul is endorsing slavery. But I want to assure you that we would be wrong if we were to draw that conclusion. Paul certainly acknowledges slavery as a fact of life in his day, and he tells Christian slaves how they're supposed to respond uh, given that situation. But he doesn't hear or anywhere else, nor does the New Testament anywhere else, endorse slavery. Okay, And so uh, let's first get that into our, our heads. Paul is not endorsing slavery. In fact, when we think about it um, in this household code, when Paul says, wives, submit to your husbands, children, submit to your parents or obey your parents, uh, he gives some theological justification for those, for those statements. But when he says, slaves, obey your masters, he doesn't give any theological justification for it at all. Okay? He's, he's not saying this is the way things should be. He's just saying this is the way things are, and here's what you need to do in the midst of that situation. So why does he tell them that? Okay? Uh, let me just say this. Uh, because we taught, I taught on this, not on this passage, but on this same sort of idea a few weeks back, and we got some uh, dialogue going in our uh, Sunday school class. If we were to bore down deeper into the presuppositions uh, within the gospel, okay, uh, it would be clear that the New Testament, and also if we look at what the rest of the New Testament has to say about slavery, it's clear that the New Testament sets a trajectory that leads to the abolition of slavery. The gospel eventually leads to the end of the institution of slavery. And in fact, that's why slavery finally died in the Western world. It was because of the presuppositions of the gospel. So again, Paul is not endorsing slavery here, and the New Testament is not endorsing slavery. So why does Paul tell slaves to obey their masters? Well, 1 Timothy 6.1 gives us uh, a little bit of help here. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 6.1, those who are under the yoke of slavery should regard their masters as worthy of all honor. And then notice why he says that's the case. So that the name of our God and our doctrine might not be spoken against. Slaves... Obey your masters so that the name of God is not denigrated in our society, so that the gospel is not maligned in our society, that is, in Roman society in the day that that Paul is living. So you've got to understand that when the New Testament was written, okay, the church was in no position to push for social change. Christianity was a tiny, marginalized, and highly suspect uh, uh, subset of Judaism back in Paul's day. The position of the church in Roman society was precarious at best. Romans understood the gospel, or greater pagan society, understood the gospel as something that would undermine the stability of their society. It advocated for the rejection of the pagan gods. The pagan gods stabilized society and the worship of the 
pagan gods ensured that society would remain stable. But the gospel uh, said to reject those pagan gods in favor of the one true God. And uh, the gospel said that there's another king, one who's greater than Caesar, namely Jesus. So in this situation, the leaders of the church had to urge their congregations to live as Christianly within society as uh, they were able to do. They weren't in a position to bring about social reform. And in any case, uh, more important than social reform for the early church was the honor of God and, and the winsomeness of the gospel. So the gospel includes in it the seeds of social reform. Living out the gospel more broadly in the world will eventually include social reform. But at the time of the apostles, urging slaves to agitate for their freedom and for their equality within society just wasn't a realistic or a viable option. So Paul says here in Ephesians 6, 5, slaves, given this social situation, obey your masters. Now, if we were to apply this message today, it would probably sound something like, employees, respect your employers. Uh, employees, render faithful service to your employers. Uh, give eight hours of good, hard, positive work for eight hours of pay. And faithful service of employees to employers uh, is certainly a way of honoring God. But more important than uh, the specific application of these verses for our purposes today is going to be uh, why Paul says slaves are to obey their masters and how they are to obey their masters. So uh, how does Paul say that slaves are to obey their masters in verses 5, 6, and 7? What are slaves supposed to focus on? He says they're to obey their masters with sincere hearts as to Christ. They are to do so not outwardly, just so that uh, their human master will be pleased or will uh, uh, be thankful to them, but inwardly, and with a positive attitude, with an eye towards serving and pleasing their real master, Jesus. They are to work to please Christ. Paul wants them to focus on Christ. And what does he say is the reason they're to do that in verse 8? Take a look there. Paul says... Slaves are to serve their masters as service to Christ because they know that one day they will stand before Jesus. And Paul wants Jesus to say to them, well done, good and faithful servant. When they put themselves aside and serve their masters for the sake of Christ and in the service of Christ, Paul says, Jesus will reward them. In other words, it's all about 
Jesus. And so now comes the the really big question. Why does Paul focus their attention on serving Christ? Why does he tell them to render service to their masters with a positive attitude as a form of service to Christ? Whose interest is it that the slave is supposed to be looking out for? Or to put it a little bit differently, who actually is number one? Well, it should be clear. Paul makes explicit here what he implied in his discussion of children and parents. Christians are to look out for number one. But number one is not themselves. Number one is not even other people in society that they're going to serve. Number one is who? God. Number one is God. Number one is Christ. And Christians are called to live their lives with an eye toward pleasing and serving Him, regardless of their personal circumstances. Wives should be looking out for number one. Husbands should be looking out for number one. Children should be looking out for number one. Parents should be looking out for number one. And now Paul says, slaves should be looking out for number one. The way Christians live is predicated on their submission to the lordship of Christ, on their recognition that he is number one and that one day they will answer to him. So look at how Paul addresses masters in verse 9. And masters, do the same things to them. That is, treat your slaves with respect. Give up threatening, knowing that both both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no partiality with him. Masters, treat your slaves with respect because you know that you stand in the same relationship before Christ as they do. You are Christ's slave. And one day you'll answer to Christ for the way you treated your slaves. One day you're going to answer to Christ for your service to him. Well, Paul is teaching here uh, the most basic lesson in theology uh, that we can learn. It's what I call Theology 101. I teach Theology 101 to my students at Talbot. I teach Theology 101 to uh, the people in my adult adult Bible fellowship here at at Redemption Hill. And in fact, uh, they are already going to know what this is right off the bat. Theology 101, the most basic course in theology, has only one lesson There's only one thing you need to learn in Theology 101. You have any idea what that is? Yeah, some people know. God is God, and I'm not. God is God, and you're not. Okay? Theology, why don't you say Theology 101 with me for a second? We'll start learning a lesson. Ready? God is God, and I'm not. Let's do it one more time. God is God and I'm not, okay? You're not number one. God is number one. As Robert likes to put it, 
It's not about you. More important than your rights, more important than your honor, more important than your freedom, more important than having it your way, as Burger King would like to you to believe, is having it God's way. The thing we need to look out for is the will and the honor of God. God is God, and you are not, and I'm not. That means that in all our relationships, in all our circumstances, we need to uh, learn to ask who's number one, or better, we need to recognize who's number one. And we need to ask, how do I look out for number one in this situation? How do I best represent the values and the virtues and the will of God in whatever situation I find myself? Now, my family has gone through a very uh, difficult experience, uh, very uh, trying circumstances for the past several years. And the situation got so bad uh, with seemingly no response to God, from God to my prayers that I seriously questioned God's love and God's goodness. I found myself crying out, are you really here, God? Do you really care? What's the use of being your servant if you never show up during my time of despair? It was a real crisis of faith for me. And maybe you found yourself crying out like that uh, before as well. But God kept bringing me back to uh, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and in due time, he will exalt you. God is God, and I'm not. I needed to trust him even though I couldn't see him working. I needed to learn that his grace is sufficient for me and his power is made perfect in my weakness. I needed to remember that in his time, he would make all things right. If not in my lifetime, then certainly when Christ returns to render judgment. And in the meantime, I needed to focus on the virtues and the values and the will of God in the midst of a trying situation. So slaves, obey your masters as servants of Christ. Obey your masters as service to Christ. Masters, Respect your slaves as service to Christ. Children, obey your parents as service to Christ. Parents, nurture your children into responsible adults as part of your service to Christ. In all you do and in all your relationships, you've got to look out for number one. So, how should we respond to this message. There are three things I'm going to ask you to do. First, 
I want you to leave this service today reciting the mantra, God is God and I'm not. I want you to memorize Theology 101. It's not too hard, so let's just say it again. Ready? And I'm not. Great. Say it another time. God is God and I'm not. Very good. Learn that, uh, that statement, okay? It's going to be on your midterm exam. Uh, you're going to be tested on that statement uh, any number of times throughout your lifetime, okay? So learn it now. Second, I want you to practice living out that basic truth. So this is going to be your homework. This week, when you are tempted to respond to a situation or relationship from a self-centered perspective, I want you to say to yourself, God is God, and I'm not. And then I want you to pray and ask, how do I serve your interests, Lord, in this situation and not my own interests? And when you think you've got an answer to that, do it. And then third, I want you to remember that there's going to be a final exam. One day, we are all going to stand before our Lord and the basic question that we'll be tested on is whether or not we have learned Theology 101. Don't forget that. God will reward or condemn us. We'll either pass or we'll fail. And it's going to depend on whether we've learned this lesson. So don't forget that the final exam is coming. So memorize Theology 101, practice Theology 101, and be ready for the final exam. So who's number one? God is, and you are not. God is number one. This week and all your life, make sure that you really are looking out for number one. Lord, we do want to live uh, for your will for your glory, for your honor. We want to uh, die to ourselves and live to you. So please empower us to do that by your spirit. 